Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Uh, very pleased to be joined uh, by Sergey and Vadim Revzin, uh, also known as The Mentors. Uh, and you can find The Mentors at uh, thementors.co. Uh, also, if you look up The Mentors anywhere you listen to podcasts, you'll be able to track them down. Uh, since they're podcasters, I'd love to hear their voices. Uh, so welcome, Sergey and uh, Vadim. Thanks so much for being here, Mike. Feels uh, feels great to be in the studio. Yeah, man. I'll try to make my voice as uh, crisp as possible. Yes, and re <laughs> resonant. Uh, yes, all of that. Uh, and uh, both uh, you, uh, the two of you, are twins. Uh, right. Which uh, you so, so our mom tells us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and then you both have a background in uh, innovation, uh, venture uh, investing, and uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, Sergey uh, is a venture investor at NYU Innovation Venture Fund, where he leads the university's technology investments. He's mentored hundreds of entrepreneurs all over the country and has been an early employee and founder at tech companies in New York City and Boston. And as if that weren't enough, uh, Vadim is an entrepreneur in residence at Ethos, a national nonprofit, and a college professor at uh, the State University of New York and NYU. Uh, he's also advised hundreds of startups and has been a founder and leader across several early and early growth and growth stage startups. So it's quite a, a set of resumes. Uh, and uh, and then the Mentors Podcast, uh, which I would recommend, as I mentioned to uh, Vadim and Sergey, I was binging a bit uh, on the two of you. So uh, now, now I get you in person, which is even better. But um, it's twice a week uh, show uh, rhythm, one of which is sort of a, a longer form focused on uh, early stage uh, entrepreneurship, uh, trying to make that a little more accessible to folks who may be uh, a little uh, trepidatious. Uh, there yeah. you go. We're yeah. Kaplan. Yeah. No, absolutely. Great <laughs> yeah. word. Great SIT word there. Um, no, but for us, for me and Vadim, we are very specifically interested in early stage entrepreneurship and the earliest um, earliest days of taking something from an idea to something that's self-sustaining that can provide, uh, you know, capital for you and your family. Mm -hmm. And for us, when we were starting out, that's something we were always curious about. That was the kind of content we would consume. But mm -hmm. we, we always felt like people didn't quite dig deep enough into the details of how you get something off the ground. There's so much to know yeah. uh, when you want to be an entrepreneur. And for us, those early days are really the most difficult, but also the most exciting and a lot of opportunity for education there, which is why we focus on that in our content. Yeah, that makes sense. And, uh, and then there's the, the, the longer form show format. And then you also have a really cool five minute, uh, pick me up episodes, which, uh, which provide inspiration and uh, quick tips uh, can you provide a little bit of a summary, uh, maybe uh, Vadim on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a little bit of a misnomer. They're called five-minute pick-me-ups. We usually go a little bit longer, eight to 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I guess we can't stop talking. But the idea of the five-minute pick-me-up was, you know, we meet entrepreneurs on a weekly basis. We hear inspiring stories from them. And that hopefully because it acts as inspiration for us will also act as inspiration for others. So we like to start the week off from a story that we heard from either an entrepreneur that we met or even an entrepreneur that we've interacted with, maybe that we don't advise. Mm -hmm. And that story uh, hopefully will kind of set the wheels in motion for somebody that's stuck in a particular problem, doesn't feel very motivated, maybe just needs to go 
that little bit extra step to motivate themselves to execute on anything that week, yeah. hopefully that episode will provide that for them. Yeah, and it's a, it's a new trend uh, that we have been noticing, and, and I, the, the three of us were talking a bit about it. Uh, shorter form podcasts are becoming uh, hotter uh, these days, and it, it, it kind of makes sense. Like if you... You want that digestible, snackable content. I hate when people say snackable <laughs> content, but I just did it. Uh, but if you do want something quick hit, because I could imagine also, uh, you know, for for folks who would want to binge on your show kind of the way I did, like it might be nice just create a playlist of your pick-me-ups and it's almost like you have uh, a nice opportunity for micro-learning there. Uh, so, uh, so I'm interested in that and uh, I'm curious about whether we might be able to borrow that concept because I think it's an interesting yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, feel free. I'm sure I'm sure we didn't invent it. And I think that, you know, the the value of it, at least to me, is it forces us to get to the point faster and mm-hmm. remove all the fluff. And right. people are so sensitive. I'm sensitive to that right now. Right. I mean, I want to hear a good story. It's it's nice to have a good production value in podcasts, but with all the content out there, sometimes I just want to get something quick and get to the point quickly. Yeah. And, and that's what we try to do that. Right. Well, and uh, to, to wit, uh, let's try to do that right now. Sure. So uh, so I'd love uh, maybe a quick recap of your origin story. And, uh, you know, I, I provided a little bit of it in the intro. But if uh, you, know, you were talking about the storytelling uh, component, uh, can you tell our listeners how, how you got to be here and how you got into the space? Yeah, I guess I'll start. Uh, this is Sergey speaking. I know we sound very similar. So if you can't distinguish listening, don't worry. Uh, nothing wrong with you. <laughs> so um, for us, we've always been interested in entrepreneurship and leadership. Partly we were inspired by our dad. We were just telling you a little bit about him mm-hmm. um, before we hit record. But he, he was a guy in the Soviet Union who was a very entrepreneurial person. Mm-hmm. For us, the word entrepreneurship means a lot of different things. But really, it's having initiative to bring ideas to life. Mm-hmm. Whether those ideas make you a billionaire, a millionaire, or something in between, you know, that doesn't really matter. Um, but actually taking those ideas to life. So we, we were given that freedom and, and license to explore different things from a very young age. Mm-hmm. We happened to graduate uh, in a, with a degree in finance and our parents wanted that security for us to, yep. to, to have that as a backup. Uh, but we also graduated right uh, during the financial collapse. So even though we did successfully, thankfully got jobs in finance, it wasn't what we thought it would be. Right. Uh, you know, reading books like Wolf of Wall Street or, or watching the movie Wall Street, right? The famous movie. Um, it wasn't quite as sexy. Yeah. And so we wanted to leave very quickly. We actually tried starting a company back in college, didn't know what the heck we were doing and it failed, but that took us on a path to deciding, you know, how, we, how can we become more entrepreneurial? How can we learn from other founders how to start something? Mm-hmm. And that led to us uh, going to different respective startups, learning from, from directly from founders, working for very small early stage teams, yeah. helping those companies grow, seeing a lot of companies fail at the, at the same time that we yeah. were part of, and, and some of them do okay, before we, we got into starting our own companies. Mm-hmm. And we probably started six or seven or eight different ideas before we even learned how to make money. Right. Um, but in that relatively short career of about the last 10 years, we've had an opportunity to, to work in a lot of different industries. I think we've had probably like four or five different careers. Uh, you know, now we're fortunate enough to, to write for, for um, publications like Forbes and HBR. We've, we've done uh, public speaking. We've done um, writing and acting and, yeah. and, and, you know, and a lot of sales product roles, a lot of different careers. So we truly believe in the ability to level up and accelerate careers quickly and experience a lot of careers in your life. And yeah. for us, 
being entrepreneurial is is a way to get there. Yeah. And I think that's changing for a lot of people as well. Most people understand now that you're not going to be certainly not going to be in one job for the rest of your life, but yep. most likely not even in one career. Right. And for us, it was always innate. Maybe it's because when we were five years old, we were forced to learn how to play the piano and take ballet classes and perform in front of thousands of people at our dad's school. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's because we moved to a new country. We have to learn a new, new language and kind of figure out how to adapt. But that ability to adapt, I guess, carried us through in our careers and our professional life. So when we got uh, into the working world and we decided finance wasn't for us and we wanted to work at early stage startups, we realized that you get to wear many hats, but also you get a kind of fl different flavor of all these different potential opportunities and directions that your life can go. Yeah. And I think that's where we realized that we're probably never going to be in one particular career. It's why we started our own companies, because when you are the CEO of your own thing, you have to learn how to do everything. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, when you change careers, you have to be very comfortable with learning new skills mm -hmm. uh, and doing things that you were completely not exposed to before. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, two years ago, we started podcasting. We were never broadcasters. Sure. Um, I mean, we sang and the like. We had recording equipment. Oh, uh, maybe later. Okay. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe later. No yeah. problems. Yeah. Uh, but we've, we've been in front of microphones, but we never hit record and tried to create narrative around things like that. Yeah. Uh, or even did editing and you kind of learn everything on the fly. And yeah. it's something new that's now in your arsenal that you could potentially apply in other ways as well. So we think life is a constant opportunity to learn. Yeah. And so why not try to pick up new skills as often as possible? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And uh, one of the one of the themes uh, that this reminds me of that we talk about a lot on the show is the, the concept of growth mindset. So, uh, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, you 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 haven't fully realized your potential until you put yourself into challenging uh, positions. And uh, it sounds like the two of you have uh, have done that uh, a lot in your your uh, your career so far. And um, it also reminds me of the Nelson Mandela quote, you know, I never lose, I either win or learn. Hmm. Um, so uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because if you're saying, you know, there's there's so many of these, uh, you know, quick cycles on uh, your your venture opportunities. Um, I imagine you learn a lot from uh, from your failures as as much, perhaps even more than from uh, your successes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for us, when it comes to starting companies, um, you know, we can we can talk about starting companies or or changing careers. But I'll start with starting companies. Is yeah, it took us seven or eight times to actually figure out how to make some money with yeah. a business, which you can't run a business without money. Right. Um, but the biggest learning that happened there is to not be married to your idea mm -hmm. and to really just care deeply about the problem and the customer. Mm -hmm. And if you think you have a great idea, maybe you do, but you have to go and figure out and validate whether there's a market for it first before you build anything. And for us, you know, we always, sometimes we even fall into this trap now, but usually we pull ourselves out of it, but it's so easy to to be excited about the idea. Yep. Um, and it's hard to do the hard work, which is testing the market. And if the market doesn't reply in the way that you want, it's easy to, to, to ignore those signs because you've convinced yourself that it's going to work anyway. Mm -hmm. And so we've just gotten better at not ignoring those signs and try to get a pulse of the market as early as possible if we're going to actually go deep and pursue an idea. I and mean, people do say that you learn more from your failures than your successes. Um, I'm not 100% sure which one is truer, but I will say that uh, people also still have the tendencies with sticking with what's comfortable. Yep. And so even if you failed, you are still possibly going to make similar mistakes in the future. Uh, hopefully you won't, but sometimes you just revert back to doing things the way that are comfortable for you mm -hmm. and 
ultimately, unless something magical happens and you're now applying it in a different way where maybe what you did wrong in the past now is actually the right thing, yeah. uh, you're probably going to make another mistake. So another thing to keep in mind is you actually have to look at your failures, think about what part of the formula didn't work, and then adjust it to make sure that even if it's something new that you have to try that you've never tried before, that you'll give it a shot because mm -hmm. that may have been the reason why you failed in the first place. So you also have to learn from your failures and that's actually harder than uh, one would think. Yeah. It reminds me, we did a show on unlearning recently, mm -hmm. which is a similar idea where like, you know, for that we were talking uh, in particular about uh, medical professionals who maybe were educated 20, 30 years ago and the way they learned how to uh, do open heart surgery, for example, was state of the art in 1990. However, uh, you know, the, the challenge really for folks mid-career, late-career is to open themselves up to the, the Zen mind, beginner mind kind of approach that a lot of like lean product development almost recommend, like, you know, your, your customers know better than you mm. what's right for them. And um, I'd love to hear uh, maybe each of you talk a bit about that too, because like you're, in some ways you're, you're learning from your own lessons but then uh, through the process of mentorship, which both of you do, uh, and it is the name of your show, um, you know, you're observing other people uh, behaving. Um, what's that dynamic like? How much are you talking through your own experience and how much are you noticing and ideally helping your mentees notice uh, their own behavior so that they can self-regulate? I think it is much more the latter. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, typically this can be in, in the perspective of a mentor or a teacher or just anybody that's trying to give you advice. Yep. Uh, typically when you hear advice, you do hear it through a particular lens, but you're still more likely to act in whatever way you thought was gonna be the right way to act in the first place. Right. And so if you're gonna be prescriptive in your advice and that's the only approach that you're taking as a, from the perspective of a mentor, you might not get as much traction with somebody as if you actually sat down and listened. Yep. And actually design thinking and what you just mentioned, it's all about sitting down, listening to the customer, listening to the various stakeholders that are involved so that you can then make better decisions from there. And the mentor is actually doing a lot of that discovery as well. Right. Because when you start a mentorship process, you need to really understand uh, what the other person's trying to accomplish, what their needs and motivations are. And then of course, if possible, you can give your own insight, but mm -hmm. then hopefully what you're also doing is giving them some options and then given what they feel comfortable doing mm -hmm. uh, and where they think the right decision and direction is to take things is, uh, is what they end up doing. And so I would say it's more so empowering them to be confident to make the right decision mm -hmm. uh, because you as a mentor, you might have an idea of what the right decision is in a particular scenario, but what are the chances of you being 100% correct? Right. I mean, if, if you, you hear about any entrepreneurs that have multiple advisors or formal advisors in their companies, there's conflicting ideas all the time. Sure. And the real skill comes in being able to synthesize these ideas and then make the right decision for your business. Yeah. 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 I mean, I would say that, uh, especially at the Entrepreneurial Institute at NYU, where I work, we really employ the Socratic method uh, more than anything else. I don't think it's written anywhere in the yeah. rules, but but that's that's really what we end up falling back on because making sure that you understand the other person's viewpoint is paramount because that you you cannot direct them unless you understand 
their biases and, mm-hmm. and their background and, and what motivates them, what excites them. Uh, and I actually, sometimes when I'm, when I'm talking to an entrepreneur and they, they tell me they want to do something, I dig a little deeper and I ask why. Right. And I try to uncover, is that really what they want to do? Or are they telling me what they think I want to hear or what right. somebody else told them? Mm-hmm. And I, I find once you dig deeper, you actually gain a lot more trust because you show you have a willingness and the desire to understand them as a person mm-hmm. rather than some prescribed notion of who they should be as a person. And sometimes it takes multiple sessions, two, three 30 to one hour long sessions to really start uncovering these things, to build that trust so that you can figure out what the true motivations for somebody is. And this is what corporations now are saying students are really not prepared for, or even adult uh, people that are already within roles that might be really far in their careers because that skill is never really learned or taught. Uh, And it's an important skill, not just for a mentor and advisor, but for a manager for a leader or even anybody in a role in a company where you interact with other people, which is almost everybody. No one's in a silo. Right. Right. Yeah. And increasingly as someone who's been in a a larger organization for pretty much my whole career, it is interesting that uh, more and more uh, entrepreneurial practices are informing larger organizations. So like the, the, the reality is if you can't think like an entrepreneur, you're likely going to get disrupted by an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, shifting a, a little bit, um, how do you translate sort of the intimacy, sort of the, the dynamics you were talking about in the one-on-one mentoring session into a format like podcasting? Like, how do you, how do you turn, turn this into something that actually reaches your audience or is it different or is it, are the, is the nature of the conversation different when you're, uh, you know, reaching out to folks who might listen to your show rather than if you're in the sort of the intimacy of a one-on-one. Yeah, you know, I find that with with podcasting, at least, the the more you can remove barriers to what's true, the the more likely that it'll be authentic and translate for the audience. What I mean by that is, you know, when we talk about, for example, stories of entrepreneurs that we've met, we don't sugarcoat it. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about just the good stuff that happened. We talk about the challenges. We talk about the frustrations that they had or when they came to our office crying or whatever it might be or mm-hmm. when or when you know when they had to when they were running out of money and they didn't know what to do next, right? How do you how do you move from that? So we focus at least for for podcasting we think storytelling and really giving you the the meat on the bones of what that entrepreneur had to go through through the ups and downs and helping you prepare you for what those ups and downs might be for you. Mm-hmm you know, that's fine. Like we always talk about on our podcast about how when we were 29, we had to move back home because we ran out of money running our business. We invested all the money in the business. Our sales weren't big enough to cover our costs. And we had to swallow our pride and and move back home for six months to figure out the next thing. Yeah. Over that six month period, we were desperate enough to leave that we figured out how to to make a, a four or five figure generating business within a couple of weeks of thinking of it. But without that pressure, you know, we would never have been in a position to do so. We're always open about that because that's true. That's part of our story. Mm-hmm. And that's also what enabled us to do the next thing. And it's what led to the success that we've had since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think with a one directional medium like podcasting, where you don't get any feedback, it's really all about um, making thing, giving people the permission to fail mm-hmm. uh, and also not saying things in absolutes. Oftentimes people think that their opinions tend to, tend to think that their opinions are the right ones, mm-hmm. uh, tend to think that they know all the right answers. And so even in a 
let's say an entrepreneurial type of podcast or an education podcast, again, they're going to be more likely to be prescriptive. Mm -hmm. This is the right answer. Here is how you should go about doing things. Whereas on our show, yes, part of the way that we allow people to fail is by showing that every successful person fails, showing that in order to succeed, you will have much more failures than not Mm -hmm. to get to that success. But also helping uh, our audience understand that we don't necessarily know the right answers. Here are some options. Here are some things that worked for us or the people that have been on our show, Mm -hmm. but it might not work for you. We're just giving you a formula, a starting point so that you can actually kind of get anything off the ground, make that first move. Because oftentimes people don't even get started. Right. And so by hopefully giving them somewhat of a formula, because people like frameworks, people like formulas, by giving them something to uh, get started off, we're hopefully giving them a launching point, but by no means are we saying this is the formula for whatever success that you want to achieve because then inevitably somebody will fail trying that thing and right. then they're going to dismiss you. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I do like the focus, uh, which I was hearing from you, Sergey, too, on like the early stage. Um, in, in, in essence, you're almost um, evangelizing entrepreneurship uh, in an in an interesting way, and then to your point, uh, Vadim, too, it's almost like modeling some of the vulnerability and uh, you know the the imposter syndrome uh, that I think any early stage entrepreneur feels, where it's like I'm not really an entrepreneur; I'm just showing up and doing the things an entrepreneur entrepreneur is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. When folks who are more experienced, like the two of you, say, I still feel that kind of vulnerability today. Um, that is another aspect of this format that I think is interesting where like, you know, you, it, it's, you're, you're right in someone's ear mm. and it's as though you're in a very uh, intimate conversation. And I think evangelizing and also um, uh, almost leading with that vulnerability, I think uh, can be more inspirational than if you say, I figured it all out and follow my checklist. Yeah. And, you know, to be clear, though, it's, it's easier to talk about your failures when you've uh, overcome them. Sure. <laughs> uh, most people won't be as open about their failures when they're going through it because, yeah. uh, because your credibility somewhat goes out the window. And why would you blame someone for not wanting to listen to someone who's in the process of failing? Right. <laughs> but um, but we, we have so many stories through the ups and downs that we always draw from. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why we evangelize, you know, I think evangelizing entrepreneurship that it's a bit of a dangerous thing because not everyone should do it. Uh, And we try to be as transparent as possible around, you know, how you should make that judgment for yourself. Right. But for us, even the failure failures that we've had in business, we've gotten to, to experience so many things in those failures that we can actually flip those and use them as an asset. Yep. That first business in college that failed was the only reason why, I was able to move from finance to sales and a startup because I could talk about a startup that I tried in college where I cold called right. companies and mm-hmm. tried to close deals. Even though we didn't really get any deals, I could, I could show you my process and tell you how to do it. And for a beginner salesperson, that was great. I stood out from any other salesperson they were interning, mm-hmm. interviewing. Mm-hmm. So anytime we've tried a new business, regardless of the financial success that the business had, we had to put all the pieces of the puzzle and then we could use that to level up a career move that we were trying to make. So for us, entrepreneurship is actually, personally, we think it's a much lower risk than many people say. Now, 
we obviously we've always had the cushion of uh, of the ability to move back with our parents if we need to. Sure. Not everybody has that, so you have to manage right. your own risk however you you have to. Sure. Unfortunately, that's that's the world that we live in. Or find resources where you you can mitigate some of that risk. Right. Uh, but we tend to think that the riskiness of entrepreneurship is a little bit uh, overblown. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will add that just to tweak what you said a little bit earlier. Not everybody should be an entrepreneur, but I think everybody should strive to be more entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just the nature of things now because you're probably not going to be in the same career your whole life because you're expected to uh, be able to get a completely new job in a new industry and figure out how to apply your skills to that industry and learn new skills. You have to be more entrepreneurial. Uh, You can choose not to be, but it's going to be much harder for you to progress in your career and your life. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, your examples uh, made me think too, how if you're responsible for the entirety of a business, the range of experience you'll be exposed to is much broader than what you'll get if you become a specialist in a larger organization. And that's something, uh, you know, because I, I spent a lot of time talking about and working on uh, skill development. Uh, there's, a, there's a real problem of deep expertise that is siloed in large organizations and uh, folks who've been in that type of a function, they've been a functional expert in a large organization, I think would benefit tremendously from at least more entrepreneurial uh, mindset and then perhaps uh, an actual uh, venture or two. Mm. Um, and um, sort of along those lines, uh, one of the questions that, that I had was, uh, you know, are entrepreneurs, uh, how much are they born versus made? How much of it is learnable? Um, and then I, I think you guys were, were both touching on it. Um, you know, how, how do you know if you're not really cut out for entrepreneurship? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And it's, and it's one that, that I really go back and forth on. I do think that a lot of the attributes are learnable. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because Vadim and I have both learned them. <laughs> we weren't always good at the things that we're good at now. I will say you need to have something that's difficult to learn is you need to have some innate drive and motivation. And maybe for some people, it comes at different times in their lives, depending on the circumstance. Mm-hmm. But the drive needs to be there because ultimately it is really hard and it, it's very easy to give up during any stage yep. of your entrepreneurial journey. So if that's something that's challenging for you where you tend to give up too easily or where you, where you tend to not be able to overcome you know, the, 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 the part of your brain that tells you not to do something because it seems scary, yeah. right? Either get coaching through that where yeah. you try to understand that the fear is really contrived by you right. and you can hopefully overcome it. Um, and I think part of it is honestly practicing. Mm-hmm. For us early on, we, we wanted to always get good at public speaking, mm-hmm. but we were nervous when we get on stage, you get the butterflies just like anybody else. Right. And for us, for both me and Medine, we started to try to challenge ourselves with that in high school. We still weren't very good. And it wasn't until our late 20s where we made a concerted effort and said, we're going to try to get on some sort of stage at least once a month, mm-hmm. even if we you know, offer to do it for free, even if it's 10 people or 20 or 50, whatever. And by doing it and exposing, basically exposure therapy yeah. over time, that fear dissipated and disappeared. And yeah. then we could focus on honing the craft mm-hmm. and actually getting good at it. So I do think that a lot of the skills you need to have are learnable, but you do have to have the desire. Yeah. And it reminds me that there's a learning science concept, uh, desirable difficulty, mm. meaning like if you're not slightly discomfort, discomfort, 
discomforted discomfited mm-hmm. there yeah. I, I got it yeah. um if you're not uncomfortable you're not really learning yeah. mm-hmm. uh so you almost have to have that uh instinct to lean into that discomfort and that's generally where learning happens uh and i think that's also where personal personal growth happens yeah well, you yeah. you have to want the outcome enough mm-hmm. like for, for us it was intoxicating the idea of getting in front of people and speaking and, and being good at that yeah so that outcome made us okay with the discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. The simple analogy I like to make is learning a language. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be incredibly difficult in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Then once you get better at vocabulary, understand the structure of the language, it gets a little bit easier. If you're able to immerse yourself in that language, or even if you spend a week or two in a different country, you probably right away can sense that you can understand things a little bit more and you yep. become more fluid with it. Mm-hmm. You have to be okay, though, with that initial moment of discomfort. You have right. to understand that that comes with any new skill that you want to pick up. Right. But that also you will overcome it at yeah. some point. And it, it, which, which brings me to the next idea, too, which is the importance of asking for help. Hmm. Where, like, rather than the, you know, which I guess is also tied a little bit to the, the strength of, of being vulnerable, you know, even though it's ironic, you know, like, if you're not, if, my read on entrepreneurship, and this is mostly just a read from the outside, is that, if you're not willing and able to ask for help, you're unlikely to be successful. And as folks who have been on the mentorship side of uh, entrepreneurship, I'd love to get uh, each of your perspectives on that. Yeah, I mean, the, I'll, I'll make a quick analogy. Asking for help is, is uncomfortable for most people. Mm-hmm. They think that people don't want to help them. They think they're bothering them. Uh, they think that they might burn relationships through that way. Funny enough, though, actually the opposite true is true. And often things, things are not as scary as you think. And I, I remember once, so I was in sales for a while um, after my finance job as well. It was a hardcore sales job. I was doing 75 cold calls a day and it was very uncomfortable for me. It was mm-hmm. one of those new skills that I was not comfortable with and I had to pick up. Yep. And I remember uh, at one point I stepped away from the phones. I was just feeling some general anxiety and lack of desire to keep on moving forward because I had been hung up on several times that day. And I remember having that kind of an epiphany or this moment of realization that, Vadim, you're going to have a lot more important conversations and meetings in your life. This right. is nothing. You just talked to some personal injury attorney out in Atlanta, right? Right. So what if he hung up the phone, right? You're going to, if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to be a leader, you're going to have to have a lot more important and difficult conversations. And right away, that kind of melted away the um the idea in my head that I had about the difficulty of making those calls. And similar thing happens when you start asking people for help. In the beginning, you think I'm annoying people, I'm bothering them. But as you do it more, you realize, first of all, if it's relevant, people want to help you. Second of all, people are social human beings and it's an opportunity for you to build a relationship with somebody else. And third, you realize that any traction that you get as an entrepreneur, any traction that you get or an opportunity that you get in your career is usually because somebody else was willing to help you out. Mm -hmm. And eventually, as you realize that in the future, you're going to want to do it with other people as well and pay it forward, so to speak. Sure. But you realize there's actually a lot more benefits that come from asking people for help because you might build a relationship and at some point you will help them as well. It Mm -hmm. might not be that month or that year, but several years down the line, whether it's an introduction that you make, you help them hire somebody, you give them a new opportunity, Mm -hmm. you help them solve some kind of problem they have in their company or in their job you'll have an opportunity to help them as well. So yeah. you're just the one that's starting that relationship by having the guts to ask for help in that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Now I would say that if you are, especially if you're building a product or service and you're trying to sell that service, you know, people may be shy about asking a friend for an introduction to someone, or mm-hmm. maybe even reaching out directly to someone to asking to speak with them. 
But you kind of, at some point, you have to believe in your ability to deliver value. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you feel like you're not experienced enough, but at least you can, you can convince yourself that you're going to work as hard as possible to deliver that value if and when you do you know, get an opportunity to have a, a working relationship or a sales relationship or a partnership with whoever it is that you're trying to approach, even if that person is your friend or family, right? right, right. You do have to have that, that sense of belief in yourself. Um, or at least develop it over time. And for, for us, when we were starting out, where we, when we didn't have a big network, we moved to New York in 2012, almost to, to the tail end of 2012, and we didn't know anybody here. Uh, most of our network was in Boston. First thing that we did is we started asking some folks in Boston if they know anybody in New York, just mm -hmm. to start meeting people. And then we just started going to networking events. And when we did ultimately start a company, we focused on reaching out to people who we thought would be likely excited to help us. And those people were the ones that were six months to a year ahead of us. Mm -hmm. We were starting a software business. We were reaching out to other entrepreneurs, you know, around our age, didn't really have to be around our age, but that's who we were targeting, who were maybe six to 12 months ahead of us. Maybe they raised a little bit of capital. They had some customers, you know, we were just getting our product off the ground and launching and we, we hadn't raised any money yet. So we didn't know what we were doing in that regard. And we just asked them for advice, a quick 20 minute phone call, mm -hmm. very low lift. And we knew they would be likely to help because they just went through that same thing six months ago. It's yeah. so fresh that they're going to jump at the opportunity to help someone in a 20 minute phone call. It's not that big of an ask. They know they could change a life. So um, by focusing on maybe people that can help you that are just a little further ahead than you, maybe that can remove some of that hesitation that you might have in, in asking for that help. That's a great idea. I thought about it on the, as a new parent, uh, similar idea. You know, if I got to find someone who's three or four months ahead of me uh, to pay it backwards to me. Yeah. And then I'll find someone a little bit behind me to, cause it, cause it is interesting, uh, even though, uh, you know, you might think uh, entrepreneurs are uh, inherently uh, competitive and I, and I think they are. Um, my experience has been, uh, they also, they, there is that, that element of you want more people to be doing this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's, that's just sort of an interesting dynamic uh, to the field. Um, I also was curious, um, just more broadly, yeah, we are a trend spotting show. Are there any trends you're noticing in entrepreneurship, uh, mentorship, uh, entre entrepreneurial education um, that, uh, that our listeners uh, might be interested in? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there is a clear trend. I, started, I developed and started teaching an entrepreneurship class uh, three years ago at State University of New York. And that was a classic liberal arts school that never had that uh, course mm -hmm. and simply to stay competitive, they realized they needed to have it. So more and more colleges, universities, educational institutions are realizing that this is something that students are seeking, mm -hmm. uh, but also that on the flip side, employers are realizing that entrepreneurial skills could be relevant to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I say at the beginning of every semester actually is like, you, you might not be an entrepreneur now, uh, maybe you'll be in 10 or 20 years. Maybe you never will be, but the skills that you learn in this class will 100% help you once you get out of college. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely been much more of a trend where education institutions are, it's, it's kind of um, table stakes now where they have to offer an entrepreneurial education or mm -hmm. some kind of entrepreneurial course. Yep. Uh, and so the opportunity for folks like me has been I'm not an academic, but because I have experience as an entrepreneur and working for other entrepreneurs, I'm able to 
create a curriculum around it that somebody that's say that's been that's a PhD in economics just can't. Sure. Um, but at the same time, it is the exact field where you do need practitioners that are coming in and educating folks because it changes all the time. Mm -hmm. The best practices change all the time, uh, and you need somebody that's kind of has their pulse on it as well. So there's definitely been a, been a trend from that perspective. And on the flip side more and more people are seeing that as an option in their career. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, there's a ridiculous stat out there that I used recently in an article that I wrote where 63% of people consider themselves entrepreneurs, mm. but actually about three to 4% actually are okay. <laughs> in the United States anyway, sure, sure. uh, internationally. Yeah. And that's just saying something where I think a lot of people at the very least, maybe they are entrepreneurs or they think they're going to be entrepreneurs that they haven't actually built anything yet, yeah. but they are excited about the prospect of creating something for themselves. Yeah. Maybe it's the ego. I don't know, but clearly people want those skills, whatever that means. Right. Uh, and so that's, I guess, why the education institutions started reacting to that because well, they still want to make money off of these people and uh, they're going to be more likely to pay for an education that has that as part of its component. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It makes me think also about moving into K-12 and other interventions. Also, um, I would, I, I always think we we tend to forget the 55 and over uh, group uh, too, so that there, there are demographics out there who I think would would benefit from exposure to entrepreneurial thinking um, really throughout throughout their lives. Uh, and also, you had me at a uh, entrepreneur, which I which I hadn't actually uh, heard. Any any thoughts uh, from you, uh, Sergey? Yeah, no, it's funny that you, you you mentioned the different demographics. We just gave a talk um, last May to our nephews graduating eighth grade. Uh, class, it was yeah. about 500 people, and they were holding, hanging on to our every word. And when it comes to entrepreneurship, because for them it's innate. You know, they grow up with the uh, Instagram influencers and YouTube influencers, yeah. and, and that is entrepreneurship as well in another right. form. It's a creativity. Sure, it's creating a, a, an asset that draws an audience that can then give you money. Right, right. And so, if I were to to speak to a trend, I would say that entrepreneurship has such a wide sort of meaning nowadays that I think every person has to define it for themselves. And we've seen enough stories play out like the WeWorks of the world yep. where, you know, the, the single notion of I'm going to start an, a company, raise a bunch of venture money and exit for billions of dollars or go public uh, of, of that being the definition of entrepreneurship, I think is being challenged now. And I'm in a lucky place at NYU where because we're both an educational institution, but also obviously we have to be self-sustaining. Yes, I'm a venture investor and I do have to find some companies that are, that are going to have that kind of venture scale that we're talking about. But I also teach and mentor uh, dozens of companies that are never going to be venture scale. They could be services companies, they could yeah. be nonprofits, they could be companies that'll, that'll make healthy in the millions of dollars, but they shouldn't raise venture capital. Maybe they should finance either self-finance or through smaller angel investments. And so I think people, students at least, are seeing that. They want the opportunity to learn those skills, if, even if they're not going to be starting or joining a, a high-tech, fast-growing company that may or may not be responsible in the way that they actually approach that growth. Mm -hmm. uh, because they want to have that skill so that they have something to fall back on so that they're not at the whim of economic cycles or, or companies that may or may not want to hire them after they spend you know, $100,000, $200,000 investing in their degree. They want to have more control. And I think schools are, are realizing and companies are realizing that they have to provide that sense of control. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, there has been, a, you know, a, a backlash against the quote unquote unicorns, uh, you know, at least in terms of uh, publicly traded companies and uh, and just the whole narrative. I, I'm coming back. I was in, I was in uh, Silicon Valley last week oh, yeah. and uh, it, it is just the 
that way of thinking, I think, is is very different than some of the early stage. Uh, you know, maybe they're an undergraduate or someone who just has an idea in their garage. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very different uh, mindset, and it's almost like uh, the thing. Maybe, and we're getting close to time, but the thing that I, I'd like to maybe uh, conclude with, and I'd love to get both of your takes on this, is uh, just the importance of storytelling and narrative. And it does feel like in in some ways, what I'm getting from both of you really in terms of what you've been talking about so far uh, in this conversation is that there are other aspects to the, the hero's quest that is the entrepreneurial uh, journey that aren't always highlighted. So like we, we hear about, you know, Facebook and how, you know, that narrative is out there and everyone thinks, oh, if I'm not, if I'm not like reliving uh, Mark Zuckerberg's narrative from the early 2000s, I'm not really going to be an entrepreneur. Um, it seems if, uh, and I'd love to get maybe some examples or just some thoughts from, from each of you on this, but considering the breadth of folks you're exposed to, um, I imagine entrepreneurship can wear many different hats and, and sort of manifest itself in a lot of different ways. And, uh, you know, helping folks understand their own story to the point that they're able to tell it in a coherent and persuasive way, I imagine is, is, is a big part of it. So uh, we're getting close to time, but I'd, I'd love to hear uh, both of you uh, weigh in a little bit on that. Yeah, I mean, another thing that I tell my class at the beginning of the semester is almost everybody in this class will not even ever speak to an investor, let alone raise money from one. Right. It's just not something that most of the population will do. Right. Uh, most businesses are not venture fundable. They don't fit the economics of the business. And so the model that we hear coming from Silicon Valley does not apply to most entrepreneurs. Right. Uh, I like to think that artists are actually uh, a great example of creators, entrepreneurs, people that are able to figure out how to sustain themselves by creating something out of nothing and mm-hmm. doing something they love. Yep. So I'll end with a book recommendation. Um, I'm not sure if you read it, uh, Daily Rituals by Mason Curry. Mm. It's a really digestible book. It's basically two to three page uh, excerpts about writers, creators, everybody from um, Albert Einstein to famous poets to Karl Marx uh, and, and other folks like that, that were able to create self-sustaining careers, uh, but also be creators mm-hmm. and how they were able to fund those careers uh, until they either became successful or unfortunately in many cases died and then became successful afterwards. Sure. But those uh, are basically different excerpts and ideas about how they led their lives on a daily basis to continue to create. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a great book. I mean, one little spoiler I'll mention is the one constant is the reason why it's called Daily Rituals is these people did their work every day and they stuck to it. Uh, Most of them felt like they couldn't do anything but do the work. Right. Some of the work 10 hours a day, some of the work two hours a day. Right. Right. So their daily rituals varied significantly, but the way that they approached it and the consistency was the same. Mm -hmm. That said, their definition of what it meant to be a creator for all of them was very, very different. Mm -hmm. And it's always good to study other people's lives to see how maybe you can borrow from them to hopefully then uh, add things into your own daily rituals to inch a little bit closer towards accomplishing whatever it is you want to accomplish or, again, even getting started. A lot of people, I think, are afraid that they're going to fail and so they don't get started. But once you realize that all these other folks also failed oftentimes. Right. Stephen Pressfield, who is a, a famous author, he has a, a great book that's called The War of Art, not The Art of War. It's a play on words, of course, but basically he talks about the idea of resistance and how most of us don't want to do the work. And this, our brain is basically telling us that we shouldn't do the work because right. we're going to fail. It's a defense mechanism. Mm. And it took him until he was 40 years old to finish his first book. Right. 
And once he realized that he was working against that enemy, if you will, he became a successful author. I love that war of art. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, I've heard, I've seen a lot more uh, writing about the passion economy as opposed to the gig economy. Mm. And uh, entrepreneurship strikes me as that too, because the gig economy just seems almost more transactional in nature. Whereas if you're adopting more of an entrepreneurial bent, you're actually uh, putting more of yourself out there. And in some ways you're, you're willing to put in the practice and the effort uh, you know, it also, the other, uh, learning, learning concept is grit, you know, mm-hmm. the idea of, uh, deliberate practice and doing the stuff that is hard, uh, which is, you know, even if it's not stuff that you enjoy, like getting into the, the ritual, what was the name of that book? Again? Daily rituals. Daily rituals. I like, I like mm-hmm. book recommendations. How, can you follow that? Uh, Sergey? I know you, you all have lived together for, <laughs> for a while or known each other your whole lives. So I'm sure you can. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I would say that if you're, you know, consuming content and reading about entrepreneurial stories that don't seem to match what you want or who you are, then, then maybe you're not looking in the right places because there are so many stories of, 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 of ways that it's played out differently for someone else that might match closer to you and your personality, mm-hmm. right? Sarah Blakely, when, when she was uh, starting her company, she was still working full-time uh, and selling fax machines. Right. And she started prototyping her, uh, I, I don't even know what they're called because I'm not in the demographic, but she took took a pair of leggings and Spanx. Them. This is Spanx. Yeah, Spanx exactly. I, didn't, I didn't want to jump on there that because I thought Thank it was you. Spanx. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Spanx, it is Spanx. And she, she just prototyped it herself at home and, and did customer discovery with her friends and mm. found found a, a factory to make initial run of it uh, before she ever quit her job. And, you know, there's so many other stories. I mean, Phil Knight, the guy who started Nike, if you've never read Shoe Dog, that yeah. is a, a fantastic book. Um, again, a quick spoiler that he worked on that business for 10 to 15 years part time, mm-hmm. right? Just importing sneakers from Japan and making a market for it here mm-hmm. in the US by selling uh, selling those shoes at track meets before he ever started working with the, the athletes that we know and love that turned that company into Nike. So, and this is at a time where entrepreneurship wasn't really a word that he was familiar with or sure. any, anybody was, right. let alone entrepreneurial education. So there are multiple ways to start something that's going to end up being successful for you and your family and give you that fulfillment. The one thing that we always tell people and what we try to reiterate on our show is that you should just lean into the things that you're curious about and that you like spending your time on. Mm -hmm. Um, Those things tend to be creative pursuits, but even if there's no clear path of how that's going to lead to money, try it out. Try creating something, putting it out in the world by seeing how people react to it. You'll get better at creating something of value over time. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Sergey, Vadim, uh, Re- Revzin are the mentors. Uh, twice a week, you can, uh, you can get, uh, get access to them uh, through their podcast. Uh, also, thementors.co. Uh, and uh, wonderful conversation, hopefully inspirational. Hopefully, our, our audience is as inspired as I am. Uh, and thanks again to both of you for being on the show. 